Welcome to Life in the Library with your hosts, Cheyenne and Sam. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Life in the Library. I'm Sam. I'm Cheyenne. And on today's episode, we read the same book. But instead of us both talking about it, I'm going to let Cheyenne discuss the book with you. I, on the other hand, decided to do some research about topics mentioned in the book. So I'm going to apologize now because I found a rabbit hole and dove headfirst into it. (laughs) As always. Cheyenne, take it away. So the book that we read together, which is our very first together read, and has been an absolute pain in our butt trying to record. This is our third time recording this episode, just a heads up. Yeah. It's called Black Widows. It's by Kate Quinn. Um, the book is originally $26, but we got it from the Alacho County Library District, the Millhopper Branch, for free. Woot, woot. Woot, woot. <laughs> <laughs> Holy moly, you guys, let me just first start out by saying that this is not at all a kid-friendly book. So parents out there, if you're listening to this podcast around your kiddos without headphones, or they're using their device and you can hear my boys talking through whatever device they're using right now, grab the phone, grab the device, turn the podcast off, shut it down, or put in headphones now. (laughs) Also, major trigger warnings and disclaimer for infant loss rape, child rape, sexual assault, miscarriage, domestic violence, addiction, survivor's guilt, religious trauma, child grooming, incest, prostitution, mutilation, and much, much more explicit content. Again, this is not a book for anyone other than adults. Okay, so now with all the disclaimers out of the way, all I can start by saying is what the actual heck did we read? A good book is what we read. (laughs) This book was literally insane. Um, It's pretty much, in my opinion, a realistic fiction based right off of the fundamentalist church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, which is a polygamous denomination of the Latter-day Saints movement. It also touches on the case of the so-called prophet Warren Jeffs. The book starts out by introducing a polygamous FLDS family, Blake the husband, the first wife Rachel, who's known to be obedient and faithful, the second wife Emily, who's very, very young, very naive, not all sane, and estranged from her Catholic family, and then my personal favorite, the third wife Tina, who's the rebel ex-drug addict and prostitute, ex-prostitute, I should say. The wives do not get along at all, and Blake's mom and dad are very disappointed by his choices for a wife. Pretty much the only thing the wives have in common is being married to Blake. (laughs) Until... (laughs) He's found dead, mutilated, and hanging by a belt from a tree at his favorite fishing spot on the homestead. Outside of Salt Lake City, Utah, pretty much in the middle of nowhere. The book literally describes the homestead that they live on as the middle of the desert. (laughs) All three wives and Blake are seriously, dramatically, emotionally damaged, and some physically damaged as well. One sister wife turns out to be the prime police suspect in his murder. All three turn against each other, and another one confesses. But did any of them actually do it? Because Blake, man, he had some secrets. (laughs) But then again, so did Rachel. Mm -hmm. Throughout the police investigation, 
the wives began to bond over pretend rituals, which, by the way, they're not actually pretend rituals. They're real rituals that the FLDS church chooses to practice in. The only reason that I specifically call them pretend is because they pretend gut themselves with imaginary knives. So. (laughs) So, they begin to bond over pretend rituals, air quotes, including cutting themselves, trauma stories of a notorious cult tucked away in the hills, whispers flying about about a fourth wife, the violence they endured from their husband, and honestly evidence that just doesn't really make sense. So I think it's Sam's turn to talk about what rabbit hole she went into because of the things that happened in this book. And then we'll come back and talk about the book a little bit more. Sam, what rabbit hole did you go into this time? Let me get my papers ready. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to point out that Shine is making me read in the dark. I am not. She's the one that turned off the light. (laughs) She's like, I want to be cozy. Also, we have our special guest star, Pogo, here with us tonight. And he is... He was asleep. He was comfortably sleeping on the floor. First, I want to point out that the definition of Mormonism is the religious tradition and theology of the LDS movement of restorationist Christianity started by Joseph Smith in the Western New York... I'm sorry, in Western New York around the 1920s and 1930s. And I'll touch on the ideas of a restorationist faith later. I only researched Utah-based information since that's where the book took place. So, since it mentioned death by firing squad, let's talk about that. The first reported Utah death by firing squad was on September 21st, 1861. Now, the name of the prisoner was William Cockroft. He had one victim. I do not like that last name. I know me either. (laughs) Now, I tried to find out more information about what Mr. William did, but I couldn't find anything. And here's where the rabbit hole began. I'm a huge crime junkie, and this immediately caught my eye. John Doyle Lee chose death by firing squad on March 23rd, 1877. He was arrested on November 7th, 1874 for his involvement in the Mountain Meadows Massacre. During his trial, he claimed to be the scapegoat for the others involved. In 1972, the Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty qualified as cruel and unusual punishment. Therefore, placed a ban on it, which was then lifted in 1974 when 66% of Americans supported the death penalty. On January 7, 1977, Gary Gilmore, who was convicted of a double murder, would be the first to die by firing squad since the ban was lifted. His last words were, let's do it. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Jump to 2004, where death by firing squad was banned in Utah and the state switched to lethal injection. However, the ban wasn't retroactive meaning that it wouldn't affect dates or decisions in the past. Prisoners that chose death by firing squad were still entitled to it. So in June 10, 2010, Ronnie Lee Gardner would be the last to die by firing squad in the state. What really caught my eye was the Mountain Meadows Massacre slash Utah War and Blood Atonement. The Utah War, also known as the Mormon Rebellion, occurred during March 1857 to July 1858. Can I just say that I am really thankful that you went headfirst into a rabbit hole about blood atonement because it also piqued my interest i just didn't want to do the research (laughs) this war was an armed confrontation between mormon settlers and the u.s government the lds were fearful that the large military force was sent to annihilate them and they prepared their defense there was no bloodshed in this war or notable military battles then is it really a war no that's why it's in quotes on my paper (laughs) (laughs) historians attribute the massacre to a combination of factors including war hysteria mormon teachings against outsiders mormon leadership such as brigham young and blood atonement 
Over the days on September 7th through 11th, 1957, there was a series of attacks during the Utah War that resulted in the mass murder of at least 120 members of the Baker Fancher emigrant wagon train. That is a mouthful. What is that? I'm getting there. Okay. Which occurred at Mountain Meadows. The wagon train was made up of families from Arkansas making their way to California on the Old Spanish Trail. Oh, okay. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the attack was led by Isaac Height and John Doyle Lee. Oh, I remember him. With a group of Mormon settlers belonging to the Utah Territorial Militia. The emigrants fought back and started a five-day siege, which resulted in seven dead emigrants who were buried somewhere within the wagon encirclement. At one point, these militia leaders feared that the emigrants saw that they were white men, and that's when the militia commander, William Dame, ordered his forces to kill the emigrants. The members of the militia approached the camp under white flag and ensured protection. Once they got the emigrants away from the camp, they killed the adults and older children, only sparing 17 young under the age of seven. That is so sad. Yeah, right? What did they do with the ones they didn't kill? They were taken in by families. They deemed that these children were just too young to relate what happened. The members were sworn into secrecy, secrecy, and a plan was set to blame the massacre on Native Americans. Oh my gosh, of course it was. <laughs> Investigations were interrupted by the American Civil War, which resulted in four of the nine who were indicted in 1874. They were Philip Klingen Smith, of course, <laughs> who left the church and turned evidence against the others, Isaac Height, who died of natural causes, John Higby, who disavowed responsibility and blamed Lee, which then led to John Doyle Lee being tried in a court of law and later sentenced to death where he chose the firing squad. Lee stated in his memoirs that he had only heard of one person who had properly received death by blood atonement by willingly atoning for the crime. Rosmos Anderson was a Danish man who had come to Utah. He had married a widow lady and she had a daughter that was fully grown at the time of the Reformation. Oh wow, how fitting for the book name. Oh, Get it? Yeah, that, that took me a minute. <laughs> At one of the meetings during the Reformation, Anderson and his stepdaughter confessed that they had committed adultery, <laughs> believing when they did so that Brigham Young would allow them to marry when he learned the facts. Oh my god. Their confession being full, they were rebaptized and received into full membership. <laughs> they were then placed under covenant that if they again committed adultery, Anderson should suffer death. Soon after this, a charge was laid against Anderson before the council, accusing him of adultery with his stepdaughter. The council voted that Anderson must die for, for violating his covenants. Clinton Smith went to Anderson and notified him that the orders were he must die by having his throat cut so that the running of his blood would atone for his sins. Anderson, being a firm believer in the doctrines and teachings of the Mormon church, made no objections. He was just like, yeah, guys, it's okay. You can cut my throat. Pretty much but asked for a half a day to prepare for his death. His request was granted. His wife was ordered to prepare a suit of clean clothing in which to have her husband buried and was informed that he was to be killed for his sins and she being directed to tell those who should inquire after her husband that he had gone to California. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> They're just like, oh, by the way, if anybody like questions you about where your husband may be, um, you're not allowed to say we slit his throat. Uh, he's in Cali. Well, that's murder, so yes. He's just chilling in Cali. <laughs> Clinton Smith, James Haslam, Daniel McFarland, and John Higby dug a grave in a field near Cedar City, and that night, about 12 o'clock, went to Anderson's house and ordered him to make ready to obey the council. Anderson got up, dressed himself, bid his family goodbye, without a word of remonstrance, accompanied those that he believed were carrying out the will of the Almighty God. This is just so messed up. 
This is not okay. (laughs) (laughs) They went to the place where the grave was prepared. Anderson knelt upon the side of the grave and prayed. Clinton Smith and his company then cut Anderson's throat from ear to ear and... (laughs) It's not funny. Stop laughing. I'm so sorry. And held him so that his blood ran into the grave. As soon as he was dead, they dressed him in his clean clothes, threw him into the grave, and buried him. Sam and I laugh when we're uncomfortable, you guys. If we haven't already mentioned that in any previous episode, (laughs) we're mentioning it now. They then carried his bloody clothes back to his family and gave them to his wife to wash. This poor woman. (laughs) When she was again instructed to say that her husband was in California. Here's her husband's bloody clothes. By the way, remember, he's just in Cali. (laughs) The killing of Anderson was considered a religious duty and a just act. Also, that was very hard to read because this John Lee Doyle guy does not have good English. And this was word for word how he wrote this. Yeah, his memoir. Yeah. Okay. So Brigham Young, who is suspected to have blame in this massacre, removed Lee from the LDS church and stated that Lee's fate was just... But it was not a sufficient blood atonement given the enormity of the crime. So they slit him from ear to ear and it was not sufficient enough? Pretty much. This poor man. He killed a lot of people. I mean, yeah, but the whole point is that, like, this was supposed to make it not okay, but, like, it was supposed to... Never mind. I'm done talking. There's no means way to say what i'm trying to say so i'm just not gonna say it okay so blood atonement it was taught to not be used as a way to punish but as a way for a sinner to make restitution for his sins to atone for an eternal sin the sinner should be killed in a way that allows his blood to be shed upon the ground as a sacrificial offering so he does not become a son of perdition what is perdition a son of perdition mm-hmm. it's pretty much someone who is just like damned and has no shot of redemption to go to heaven like they're just going straight to hell no questions asked oh, okay gotcha some eternal sins that young and other members believe needed blood atonement included apostasy theft fornication adultery however it did not include sodomy the full list of sins requiring blood atonement was never given how many sins do you think there are that require blood atonement in the flds church i have no idea Probably a lot. Young considered it more charitable to sacrifice a life than to see them endure eternal torment in the afterlife. So in other words, he cared about these people too much. Pretty much. Blood atonement was also the force behind laws that allowed capital punishment by firing squad or decapitation. In the early days, Mormonism was a restorationist faith. Leaders such as Joseph Smith and Brigham Young frequently discussed the efforts to reintroduce social, legal, and religious practices described in the Bible. Things like temple building, Polygamy, patriarchal, theocratic governing structure. On March 16, 1856, Brigham Young's sermon encouraged enforcement of the doctrine by individuals in certain situations. He said that if you found your brother in bed with your wife and... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, it's not funny. It is pretty funny. And put a javelin through both of them, you would be justified and they would atone for their sins. I don't think that's ever justified. (laughs) And they would be received into the kingdom of God. He also said that whoever intend... I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, they were doing something wrong, but they just got murked, man. Yeah. <laughs> and who has a javelin javelin laying around? Just, just in their living room. <laughs> in their truck. They just have a javelin. Like, BRB, let me go get my go. spear. <laughs> Sorry, this is modern times. Brigham Young. 
I mean, even in his time, who had the freaking javelin just laying around? I know, that's what I'm saying. This is medieval times. Like, normally people keep a crowbar in their truck or, like, a gun, but... <laughs> no idea. Maybe the <laughs> <had a> javelin. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> he also said that whoever intended to execute judgment better have clean hands and a pure heart or else they better leave it alone. I agree with that. Exactly. Just that part. He also went on to say that if the couple was not caught in the act, it is recommended to let them live and suffer in the flesh for their sins. Now, the greatest covenant breakers were those thought to be apostates, who, according to early tradition, would become sons of perdition, and there was no chance for exaltion. Young believed that blood atonement would at least have some benefit. The concept of blood atonement has been used by a number of fundamentalist splinter groups as a way to justify murder of those who disagreed with their leaders or attempted to leave their churches. <laughs> Blood atonement still remains an important doctrine within Mormon fundamentalism. With that being said, I just want to end on some differences between the LDS church and the fundamentalist groups. So I'm going to use the well-known FLDS. Some of these differences are the LDS has a single leader who has never been accused of anything, whereas the FLDS's leader is in prison and still has vast control over his people. Literally. The LDS is non-polygamist and has no placement marriage, whereas the other group does. The LDS is encouraged to wait until marriage to have sex, whereas the other group is not allowed to have sex unless with their prophet. Yuck. Disgusting. The LDS is advised to dress conservatively, whereas the FLDS has restrictive dress and can't even show their ankles. Both groups have very different ideas on racism. I didn't really look much into that because I didn't want to, to be honest. Not only that, but... Nor did I want to speak on that subject. Yeah, exactly. The LDS doesn't generally accept LGBTQ plus people. Um, I don't know if that's changed. <laughs> Probably highly doubt that. Whereas the other group kind of just ranks them right up there with murderers. Oh my god. <laughs> so one kind of funny thing is in the FLDS group, you can drink coffee, tea, and alcohol. Whereas the LDS group cannot the lds doesn't care about what type of schooling uh the children in the religion have whereas the flds they require homeschooling which makes sense because none of them are to leave the compound yeah that does make sense um the lds they does... also sorry not to cut you off but they also have a really big lack of education because they are homeschooled on the compound correct the lds doesn't believe in blood atonement whereas as we just learned the flds still uses blood atonement and the LDS can vote, whereas the other group cannot. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. The FLDS unfortunately has a genetic disorder called polygamous downs, whereas the LDS church does not have this genetic disorder. So that's going to wrap up my rabbit hole. But the back of our book did have some discussion questions, so Cheyenne's going to take it away with those. So the author had some questions in the back of the book for the readers, like discuss discussion questions once you get done reading the book to kind of go over and get your mind thinking a little bit. But I've rewrote some of them so that there are no spoilers for you guys. So Sam and I are just going to go over some of those questions. The first one being, what did you think of Blake? Because in the beginning, I really thought and honestly believed that he was genuinely sweet and catered to the wife's needs. And then he completely like 180'd on me and turned crazy out of nowhere. So I just want to know, Sam, did your opinion change about him at all throughout reading the book? No, I didn't like him the entire time. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, did you see any similarities between Rachel, Tina, and Emily? Yes. They were all traumaed. Yeah. He was definitely a predator in the sense that he sought them out because they had trauma. Accurate. <laughs> so why do you think they would choose to stay a family after Blake died? Like, why not just leave the trauma behind them and go their separate ways? Because they were married still. Yeah, but they didn't have to be married anymore. Blake wasn't alive. You're just going to go through all that trauma on your own? Or would you not want your sisters? But they weren't real sisters. They were sister wives. Yeah, but at that point, they didn't have to be. But in their religion, they were married. So they would literally have to divorce, in a sense. And their religion doesn't believe in divorce. I don't know. I feel like I would leave. (laughs) I wouldn't. You would stay. They were already bonded. What's the point in leaving now? They have nothing to go, like, return to. They literally only have each other. In the Uh, compound. Okay. I see. I see your point. I guess. So, Kate Quinn asks, because of their polygamy, Rachel, Emily, and Tina struggled to find acceptance. How would you feel in their place, rejected by both people inside and outside of your religious community? Horrible. Yeah, same. I would feel awful. What about the way that Rachel submits to men? How did you feel about that? I personally thought it was garbage. Why? She was traumatized. Yeah, but there was a point in the book where she had like this aha moment and she kind of started to stand up for herself, but then she reverted back into that submissive mindset. That's all she's ever known. I know, but she came out of it for a second. Okay, yeah, but take me for example. You really think anything in my mindset is going to change immediately? No, but if, okay, you, then. if you get to the point where you break it. But she wasn't like to the point to break it. I mean, she, she did. She knows what's better and what could have a better effect, but she doesn't know how to change it. But she did change it at one point in the book. I don't even remember this book. Oh, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so long. You guys have to remember we read a book a week, and this is our third time trying to record this episode. So this was like how many weeks ago that we read this I feel book? like this was almost a month ago. Yeah. Um, I should probably stop patting Pogo. <laughs> Throughout the book, Rachel experiences dreams that she thinks may be suppressed memories. Nope, they're visions. <laughs> so Sorry. It said, what did you think of that? <laughs> so obviously we know Sam thinks they're visions. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was weird because I've had some suppressed memories that have come back to me, just not in the form of a dream. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, weird. She has more like uh, that's so Raven moments. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Blake passed his fear of cameras and surveillance along to his wives, even though he wasn't actually being watched. Do you think that surveillance? So this is a two part question. So do you think that surveillance is becoming more common in today's world? Yes. Yes. Okay. Second part. Do you think that Blake's fears would be justified in society today? Because they weren't justified in the society that he lived in. But do you think that they would be justified in our modern day society? Yeah, probably. I think so, too. Because I know that you and I personally talk all the time about when we're on the phone. (laughs) Hello, little FBI agent. If you're listening to this, this is all hypothetical. (laughs) Freaking literally. (laughs) Um, We just like to cover our bases. (laughs) So it personally took me a while to figure out the identity of the killer. And when I did, I was shook. Did you figure out the identity quickly? Because normally I'm one who can kind of like piece together who done it or who did it quickly. But this time I just wasn't able to until like chapter 80 something. 
Um, so what about you? Did it take you a long time to figure it out? Do you feel like it took you a normal amount of time? Um, I feel like it took me a little bit. Um, but at one point of the book, it kind of just started to like white bulb effect, light bulb moment. And I was just like, hmm, I wonder. Also, <laughs> what did you think of the killer's motivation? Um, <laughs> I think they were insane, first of all. Yeah, I agree. But there are some people that would think that it's justified from that person's perspective. Because of what that person believed in. Touche. You know? Sure. But I think... Not following. The book continue. <laughs> I think the person was just a psycho. Agreed. Okay. So, in closing, this book was just all layers of super crazy cake in such an interesting, twisted way. No pun intended to our previous episode. <laughs> but because of what we know about this book, there's a Netflix documentary... That kind of goes hand in hand with this book a little bit. And it's called Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey. And it actually talks about Warren Jeffs and his involvement in the FLDS in Utah. So, well, that's it for the book itself. Sam said that she had something she wanted to say. So, what's up, Sam? Okay. So, Cheyenne used to be a nail tech, but she quit. She hated it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> because it's a toxic work environment and I want to work for myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, Cheyenne does my nails. Woot woot. So, I have super bad anxiety, and one of my side effects um, is that whenever I have natural nails, I will rip them down to their nubs. And she's been so good. Yeah, I'm a natural nail girl now. I know. They've grown out so good, and her nail beds look so pretty. So, shout out to Cheyenne. Woot woot. And shout out to my doctor for giving me anxiety meds. <laughs> woot woot. Thank you, doctor, whoever you are. Alex. Thank you, Dr. Alex. Shout out to Dr. Alex, because... You're taking care of my friend, and she needed it, and we love you. That part. All right, that's all I had. <laughs> all right, guys. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Big Daddy Unlimited, for partnering with us on this podcast. Until next time. Bye.